Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll find the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And now, here is your host, the CEO of Access Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, the original media maven herself, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and your host for Media Maven's podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Koshman at AMB Publicity. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good. I am so excited. I just want to get our next guest on right now. We are a podcast, but now we are officially global. But I have Stephen Crancato, who's the CMO of Versace, Escada. He's been on the studio side, Sony, Warner Brothers, dialing in on a Friday night from Italy. So, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. And uh, Bonasara from Italy. (laughs) Bonasara. Oh, so I'm so excited to have you on. Like, it's so funny because I was telling Michelle for like two weeks now. I was so excited because you had me at Versace. You started here in Santa Monica in L.A. in entertainment. You moved from studios to runway to Italy. I don't even know where to begin. So I'm going to take the route of let's talk about what's going on with you, how you ended up in Italy. Take us through the runways and we can backtrack in the studios from there if you have enough time. Cool. Well, I, as you mentioned, I've hopped around categories and and industries a little bit. And I've also hopped around countries and continents a little bit in my career. Early on in my career, I was actually at Condé Nast and I was part of the launch team for a men's fashion magazine called Details. And, And Details, happily, our vision with Details was we wanted to launch kind of a younger, hipper GQ, another Condé Nast book, because we saw a real hole in the market and a real opportunity. And it worked. We had a British editor, creative director who had done magazines in England that I loved called Arena and The Face. And when I heard that these guys were going to be coming to New York to launch a men's magazine that kind of had that a little bit in-your-face attitude of British magazines, I was very excited. So it turned out to be a hit. It was one of the fastest-growing magazines in the country at that time and really resonated with the audience. And while I was there, I was asked to go to Atlanta to meet Ted Turner. And Ted was looking, Ted was looking to launch a new television network called Cartoon Network. And he had bought the world. Ted was obviously CNN, Headline News, TBS, TNT. You know, he had really created, well, he's considered one of the godfathers of cable television, certainly one of the godfathers of TV news. And he had bought the world's largest library of animation. And that was, he got Hanna-Barbera Studios, which were Scooby-Doo, the Jetsons, the Flintstones, TV shows that I remember, but but some of your some of your listeners may be too young to remember. And he believed that there should be a network devoted to cartoons. And again, this is the vision of Ted Turner that not a lot of people have. You've been, and I mean, no Cartoon Networks, and you've been in the studio. You've been with all these sites. Were you running CMO like all the global marketing, or were you more into the digital broadcast side of all this? So good question. I would say most of my career, I've been a chief marketing officer or the senior most marketing person. I would say there have been a couple of other times in my career when I've been either the creative director or at the case of E, becoming the head of programming. So I would say that my career is a little different from a lot of CMOs you'll talk with in that I've been both the head of creative and the head of marketing strategy. And I hope that reflects a good right brain, left brain balance. You know, I've, I've had to be, to be the right hand guy for CEO, COO, CIO, CFOs to be able to talk with them about strategy, positioning, white space analysis, financials, et cetera, et cetera. But also a lot of my career has been with creatives. So from Donatella Versace for more than six years, but to, you know, writers, art directors, producers, videographers, 
I've been able to move through my career. I've actually gone back and forth between those things. So cartoon, I was creative. I was not the CMO of Cartoon Network. I was the head of On Air, which means pretty much everything that came on the network besides the shows themselves. So the network identification, all the commercials, all the promos, the look, the voice, the tone of the network. And I think with cartoon... And sorry, Sarah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> well, no, no, I think, I think you know, the digital mobiles, I think creative and CMO, um, CCO, I think they come hand in hand because as from, you know, we're a PR firm. So PR and marketing is all about strategy, creative, go to market as strategically and creatively as we can. You've got to have a voice to stand out above all the noise, which is why we have the podcast, create a platform to tell your story. So I do think for the CMO, Unless, you know, you guys definitely throw your two cents in there, Michelle, as well. I think to be a solid CMO, to be a leader, to show strong leadership, you got to also be able to understand the creativity to move that company forward. So I think you have to have kind of a foot on both sides of the fence right. there. To Establishing make it that brand. Yeah. Yeah, because you've got to you've got to be creative about it. You just can't do traditional well, stuff. You've got to think out that box. And that's where I think, yeah. Stephen, your creative side is a huge benefit to people. I think it's an important point in that I think sometimes you might, for a CMO, you know, especially these days, a chief marketing officer position can be a myriad things. It's changed so much. And and now oftentimes they don't even use chief marketing officer or things like that. It can be the chief customer officer, the the voice of the consumer, consumer officer. Engagement, engagement. As so many different things. But I think audiences. Yep. You've got they are the creative and the strategic should be ideally in the same body, but it just isn't sometimes. So sometimes in that case, your senior most marketing person is really kind of a quant jock, very analytical, <laughs> very, very much just, you know, crunching the nums, yeah. et cetera. And very, that's, I'm not slamming it. It's just that is his or her orientation and forte. And then there's a converse where you've got a marketing person who's really primarily a creative person who really wants to be just focusing on the creative, make it beautiful, make it sexy, make it this, make it cool, make it hip, much less so on the numbers, the analytics, et cetera. And I think what happens sometimes when either of those situations is the case, you might have really, really great strategy and positioning. And you really understand the market. You've done your research on the consumer. And then it comes time to translate that into creativity that delivers the strategy, that delivers on that and realizes the potential of all those good insights and findings. And what happens is when it's either or a person who doesn't marry those things, it might get handed off to an ad agency or handed off to someone else. And there ends up being a disconnect. The creative that results, again, might be beautiful. It might be expensively produced. It might be funny. All of those sorts of things. It might use amazing music or stars, but it's not a realization, well, a, 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 a realization of the strategy. There's a huge disconnect there because it, it doesn't matter. You know, it's a chicken and the egg syndrome. You have to have quantitative facts, the market. You've got to have that go-to-market strategy. It's all about the communities and the engagement, experiential. So if you're just right. creating something great, and I don't understand the science and data behind how to go to market and how to reach these people, how to give them a better experience, there's a, would be a huge disconnect on the agency side. So yeah. you kind of, I get if you have two people that are working so close, same brain, where they understand both sides, but they just could translate it better. That's one thing. But I think you do lose a lot of that momentum and a lot of the loss in translation. Then when you push it off to an outside agency, an ad agency, because you're just doing sexy campaigns, but yeah. are you really understanding the market? So I personally think, a solid CMO, a leader of a company has to understand both sides and able to execute. You mm-hmm. to create it, you figure out the market, you've got to be able to deliver the right message. And perception's reality, as you know, when it comes to marketing and PR. And of course, and, you know, we're speaking in generalizations. So yeah, I know, I get it. There's never there's never one solution, you know, For there everything. can be amazing, there can be amazing 
results from from multiple different kinds of staffing scenarios yeah. and talent and scenarios. All I'm saying is sometimes you can see that the creative is a disconnect. Um, either doesn't seem to have a strategy or just really seems to be a misfire or doesn't maximize upon the opportunity if there was good foundational thinking. That's my only point. And I hope, you know, and I have strived to achieve that myself and through my teams and my career. And that, that I would say is just, that's my point. Yeah. That's an interesting point you brought out also about having a customer officer, because in the old days of admin, that wasn't really a thing. It was so much just math. You can't mathematize people and their tastes. And we've all seen just even this year, how quickly emotions can change on what people prefer and, and incorporations. So that is a very nice humanizing, empathetic new shift in all sorts of branding and company structure that gets pulled into, like you said, the creative and marketing, marrying it together. So it's more balanced and approaching the customer. It's a really nice Well, I think it was of necessity, simply because as we know, more than five or 10 years ago, I mean, I can't remember when the big change happened, but all of your communications used to sort of come down from the mount. You know, I mean, depending on the industry, you might do one or two big ad campaigns a year, you know, your press releases, this and that, your big initiatives and promotions. And it was all one way. It was you were dictating and directing what the consumer would receive. And it was a one-way transmission. So having this 24-7, trying to tune into the consumer or your client, 24-7 really wasn't a consideration. You know, you'd kind of look at, you'd run a campaign and then say, okay, what was their reaction? Not to say you didn't do research in advance, but it wasn't that, you know, out of necessity, to really get into their heads. And and again, those were the old days when people were still saying, well, who's your customer? And they'd give you, you know, an age range, um, you know, demographics and psychographics and basta. That would be sort of as far as it would go. And now people realize, number one, it ain't a one-way message. It's going to go back and forth. And you need to engage these people in some kind of give and take conversation. And I think, therefore, deeper understanding, not just of how old they are, and is it an A, B, C, D county, but really trying to discern what are their hopes and wishes and dreams and aspirations? What's their value system? All those things that are used to be really, really hard to discern and people didn't even talk about. But now in the day of tribes and affinity groups, and when we see young people saying, well, my top three priorities in picking a brand are, uh, you know, number one, are you open and honest and transparent? Number two, do you share my values? And number three, you know, do you have heritage, legacy, authenticity? Young people are shopping their values. And so if if they're doing that, and if they're saying, look, if I find out you're a company that uses slave labor or, or pays slave wages, or you sully the environment, or you have political positions that I don't like, I'm not going to bring your brand into my life. And they'll find that out about you. So I think it's all of this has just been a reflection of obviously the changing media market and the changing communication market, but also a real different sensibility on the part of the consumer. Well, I think it's also it's it's about the experiential. I mean, people buy base, like you said, on brand loyalty. So you got to have an affinity to the DNA of their brand has got to match yours. The problem is they're they're losing the brand loyalty. People, they need that authenticity. As you were saying, they want the backstory of the brand. If I know the backstory of the brand and I know the authenticity and I know your backstory, if you're a vineyard, a fashion designer, whatnot, I'm going to be loyal. So that brand loyalty is only going to be secured and held on to if 
you have a great experience that you give them the experience of interacting with your brand. And that's where the alignment is so critical because people think, oh, brand loyalty, they bought once, they bought twice, easy breezy, we have their email. That's not brand loyalty. Brand loyalty is really understanding that backstory and understanding the DNA of the brand. And like you said, it matches my values because most young, I don't know if it's a, I don't think it's really even the young people. I think in general, given the past few years, what everybody's been through, especially this past year, their purchasing power is going to their loyalty. So that brand loyalty Uh is so critical right now more than ever. And I've seen a few brands who've come out, who've switched gears because of all of this and this past year with COVID. I've seen a lot of brands fail because they're still thinking, oh, just hit the masses, blanket. But now that there's no more events, there's like, because brands love the music industry. There's millions Uh of people who have all the same, you know, the wants. It's not that simple. So every industry is different. We get that every vertical is different, good, bad, or indifferent. But let's talk about the experience, that brand loyalty going from the networks, the studios, to the runway. Let's talk about what you did at Versace. I know you did a Scotty for a while. How much difference is that brand loyalty? And what are you doing over in the fashion houses? Yeah. You know, I would say for When we talk about brand loyalty in luxury, it can be a bit different than brand loyalty in some other tiers of the pyramid. You know, I mean, if you're talking about brand loyalty to a car tire or even an automotive brand, if you've had a good experience, you'll probably do it again. And first, I should also say we all work in categories that are overcrowded and we all work in a communications and media environment that is completely overcrowded. So people already got too many messages before all these new forms of communication and transmission arrived. But they're they're super, super overwhelmed. It's easier. Okay, I I know it's not easier. I know you had a tough, I mean, Versace globally is a tough job, but I do think, and we ran a lot of runways. So for me personally, I feel at least, let's just go down the road of fashion here. Because, you know, the world is our runway. I mm-hmm. buy towards things that, you know, the quality, accessibility, what looks good on you. I happen to be a fan of Versace and I do have a Versace pillows. I mean, I'm just uh-huh. such a fan of Versace. I always have been. It's Italian, it's quality, but the clothes and some of the runway bags that I have that are only like 20 were made in the world and I have like five of them. Like I love the quality and the look and the feel, the texture and Versace just fits well. So I have four or five brands as we all do that we wear because we have an affinity to that brand based on look, feel, fit. I mean, our loyalties in fashion are not like, hey, find good tires for safety. There's tons out there. It's not, it's convoluted space, but we it's very particular because once you have a brand you will always yeah. wear that classic brand so i always feel like you're correct 100 percent spot on on this steven but i feel like the fashion side from Moscata to versace may have more brand loyalty given it's more emotional isn't it well we all yeah we, I mean, you care what yeah. you look like and the clothes are amazing so was that an easier market for you or did you still have some of the um, i would say no 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 i would say Fashion and luxury is one of the most difficult markets to do marketing in because you are, you know, I always tell my teams in whatever industry I've worked in, you know, we're going for the head and heart. We're trying to make the sale rationally and we're also trying to make the sale emotionally. And if we hit both head and heart successfully, we've got them. And when I say rationally, it's, it can be things like, again, if it's car tires, you know, how deep is the tread? Is it, does it perform long, better? Does it last longer? Does it give more? It's a kind yeah. of objective, or in some cases, it could be price. Or, ed- or education. It's an education. You walk into any and store, it's how, how you're greeted, the experience you have in the store that makes you go back. Tires, fashion. Right. So with consumer products, rest- oftentimes there might be a comparative story to tell that is objective. With luxury, with fashion, you were saying that you love Versace quality or some of your luxury brands quality. Quality is kind of the the door to entry in luxury. I mean, everybody who's buying 
luxury products kind of assumes the quality is going to be there. And if you are not delivering quality, you'll be out of business very quickly. Because again, with that price value ratio, we can all get fashion. We can all get great looking fashion. We can all get clothes, H&M, Zara, wherever, at pretty accessible price points these days. You know, a Uniqlo, they've all made pretty great looking stuff, pretty affordably priced. When you want to bring that client up to the world of luxury and have them understand that what I was buying at, you know, from Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren, whatever, or from Zara or H&M, I'm now going to go pay five times the price, 10 times the price, 20 times the price, because I want to be a luxury client. I feel really strongly maybe about this piece or this item. And I should also say these days, you used to have in the old days, you know, the kind of Christian Dior woman, you know, who was wearing, she'd wear head to toe Dior. Uh, you know, or head to toe Chanel. Few people these days do, even the most affluent, head to toe, even luxury, even if they're going to mix the brand. These are the days of 300 euro pair of Versace sunglasses with a trucker hat or a, you know, $700 Balenciaga skirt with a Gap t-shirt. High low is the formula. And it was started with young people who don't want to be perceived as fashion victims or anybody's sort of, you know, that, 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 that they're going to walk around looking like a billboard for any brand. But it's actually gone up into the older, more seasoned clients who've also recognized. And I don't know if you remember years ago, Sharon Stone walked, was at the Oscars. And after the Oscars, people were saying, who are you wearing? I actually think she was making maybe in the press room. And she said, my skirt, I don't know, Oscar de la Renta, Carolina Herrera, and my T-shirt's from The Gap. And she gave a big smile and everything was like, oh, my God, T-shirt from The Gap. But to her, that was Sharon Stone saying, I'm nobody's fool. I'm a smart customer and I'm going to spend the money where it counts, i.e. this amazing expensive skirt, but I don't need to pair it with another really expensive item on top. I'm a self-confident, self-possessed woman, and I'm wearing a Gap t-shirt. Now, sadly for Gap, almost nobody wears Gap t-shirts these (laughs) days, so it could be a Jake Root t-shirt, it could be who. But she she made her own fashion steamer. Like, I love, and I do this all the time, skirts, dresses, and I'm in a pair of white tennis shoes now versus heels. I mean, it's just all about making an MEK. Let's scap. But I love the look of an expensive skirt with a pair of clean white sneakers and a T-shirt. I mean, mix it up. It's all about your personality. You're not being, can I say the word bougie on a podcast, Michelle? Yeah, Um, love it. But but see, but I I love If that's as bad as we get on this podcast, we'll have done very well. I am learning. I'm learning not to curse so much, but I just honestly, we all, we all thought, let's be bougie. Let's look at the shoes. And sometimes I'm in a pair of sky high runway shoes, but I'm in jeans with so many holes in them and they're ripped up in a t-shirt. Is it you just it's that one item that you said you want to put money into and the rest is just your right. own style and you still look clean and fashionable, but it's that confidence you have to have right. wearing what you wear. And it doesn't mean you have to be bougie to be confident, you're still gonna look good no matter what you know. And I think yeah. so that is uh, sorry, Michelle. No, I was just thinking that is an interesting detachment too, to say, I'm not trying to impress others. I want to please myself. That's a confidence shift in the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the question is, what does it evoke? And it tells other people, number one, everybody gets the status message because they're picking up on, you know, the Gucci bag or the The sunglasses, whatever they, you know, they got it. You can afford, you can afford the good stuff. But the way you mixed it indicates your individualism, that you are not anybody's fashion victim. You know how also 
you are a smart consumer because you know how to do high low and you can mix it up. And I think where, you know, nobody looks at that these days and goes, Oh, really? So you could only afford the skirt and you couldn't <laughs> afford the top. Yeah. It's just like, no, this is me. <laughs> and this is how I've taken these various elements of all different price points and, and, you know, maybe even different, different stylistic schools. And I mix them up and I'm telling you through that, I'm kind of telling you who I am. And one of the things I'm telling you is I'm a smart customer and I know how to spend money and I know how to allocate it wisely and correctly. So that's what's happening. But your question about customer loyalty in, in the world of luxury brands and fashion brands, most clients for any luxury event, the one thing I will say, the one caveat is the trend we just described would be less so if you go over to say China, where a lot of customers, and again, I'm going to make some generalizations, but China is, still, first of all, China is every luxury brand's number one customer. So they're hugely important. But China, since it's relatively recent for the masses, to have a lot of money and to be able to afford luxury, they're still in a developmental stage. So for instance, at our stores in China, it will be more common for us to sell total look, head to toe. You know, the husband is buying a Versace or a Gucci tracksuit with the Medusa sneakers and wants the wife. Not only is he head to toe, total look, the wife is too. And I, it's not a look for me per se. We love those customers, those clients. So you'll see, you know, as different markets and different cultures move through becoming more accustomed to luxury, to high fashion, to expensive accessories, they start to become more sophisticated. And what happens is, is that sort of story that everybody wants, you know, once you get the money and can afford it, everybody, there were periods where everybody wanted the same in America, the same Michael Kors or the same coach bag. And then you started seeing that Michael Kors or coach bag on everybody. And, you know, every bus stop you'd pass, there she is, et cetera. And so the more, a little more discerning customer started saying, yeah, no, I wouldn't be caught dead carrying that because everybody's got it. And so I'm going to move on to the next level of discernment or sophistication. So China is moving through that now, but they'll still be a little bit more total look, you know, because they're kind of new to luxury. The last thing they want to do is go, oh, it's a gap. It's a really cheap t-shirt. <laughs> you know, it's still like, no, look at me. I've made it. So I'll tell you something that we did at Versace for customer loyalty that kind of represents how different customer loyalty, keeping the customer happy, creating customer experiences is different in that realm. You have clients who can pretty much afford anything. That's not all your clients, clearly. I mean, in all luxury houses, you have, you have a certain number of your clients who have saved up to make a special occasion purchase. And that will be their one gotta have luxury bag of the year or a pair of boots or high heels they've seen, or maybe even just the lipstick or the perfume, but they are still in the entry phases of luxury. And so they're, they, these really are special occasion things I stay for, something that I feel like I gotta have, I'm gonna die without. But then you've just got a lot of people who are in those, you know, the top quintile of a household income. They can afford the best and they buy the best. And for them, for many of these people, especially at the, you know, sort of haute couture houses or things like that, these are clients who have a lot of money, multiple homes. They own multiple luxury brands. They've got luxury throughout their life. They're staying at six-star hotels, eating at only the very best restaurants. And so to think about things that you might do in with normal consumer products with this group, it ain't going to work. Like 
they don't want another email nudge from you to go to the website because everything's on sale or, you know, hey, here's the loyalty program and start racking up those points and you might be able to get, you know, some blush for free. No, it just doesn't work. So we, I'll tell you, Versace, I mean, we would bring all these people in. Obviously, when you're in a place like Milan or Paris, bringing them in for a fashion show, giving them a prominent seat at a fashion show for a good customer is expected. It's so a portion of fashion show seating, as I'm sure you know, will be for your best clients. But even before the fashion show, having them come into Milan or Paris a few days early for maybe a private dinner at the Versace mansion in Milan, the Versace villa in Milan. Maybe Donatella comes by to do a toast. Maybe they get a tour of Johnny's quarters when he was alive and what his apartment in the villa looked like when Johnny was there. Maybe they get a backstage tour of before the show. Maybe they're brought into the showroom the day before and they get a first look at all of the collection before it goes down the runway, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are all things that you can do to create experiences. And, and, and as I'm describing, you know, we might bring them into the archives to show them some of the prints that Johnny created when he was alive that, you know, nobody gets to see anymore. Helping them feel not only close to the brand and hearing the brand story. And understanding and appreciating the brand's DNA, but also this feeling of privilege. You are, when I would gift them, you know, if they, they would come over and they'd come from the Middle East, they'd come from Russia, they'd come from China, and, or from New York, or Denver, etc. Many times on their private planes, they'd come in for the shows, stay at the best hotels, I would often want to give them a gift and thank them for coming to the show. And what I did at Versace was one year, as an example, I went through our archives and I found a gorgeous print that Johnny had created that was never available to the market. Never, never was made, never was turned into something. Nobody has it. And so I made a necktie and a pocket square out of that fabric and beautifully packaged it for all the gentlemen. For the wives or lady friends or women who were there on their own, they all got a bottle of our yet-to-be-released Versace perfume, and the bottle was autographed by Donatella Versace. So these are people who have everything, can afford everything, but they were given things that money can't buy. They were given pieces of a legacy of Johnny Versace that nobody else in the world has. And what happens with these people is they go home and they entertain with their friends and who are also high rollers, high net worth individuals, and they talk about what they just experienced in the lawn. And maybe four times out of five, the guy will say, you won't believe what I've got. Let me show you this. This was a fabric that Johnny himself created that nobody else has. And they, they've only made a hundred of them and I got one. Or she holds up a bottle and says, oh, by the way, I met Donatella and Donatella autographed the perfume bottle for me. And by the way, you can't buy this yet. It's not available, but I've got it and I'm wearing it tonight. They do your storytelling for you. So I'm sorry for that long anecdote, but these are the sorts of things that in the world of luxury can differentiate you, can help create experiences that are truly unique and singular, can impart your brand's DNA, your history, your legacy, your authenticity in creative ways that people can feel and touch and bring home with them. But lastly, help turn your clients into your best salespeople and brand ambassadors because you, you've you educated them and you've inspired them and excited them and made them feel very privileged and very special. And they tend to go share those moments with others. I love this story because it's all about the experience, you know, 
and it's the education, but it's about, like you said, you touch base on the storytelling and storytelling is so important to get that narrative out. So, you know, not that I don't, I want to pivot off the runway, but I do want to take that because you know about storytelling, you understand the consumer's wants and needs. Was this how you ended up moving to Italy for these jobs? Because you were here in the States at the studios and students are all yeah. storytelling through film, TV, yeah. you know, through movies. So it was that why you moved to Italy and then did fashion bring you to, uh, to Italy. But then was this, you have that, that storytelling that also plays back to the studio work you did here in the States. Yeah. So I would, you know what, uh, the way it has worked out is when I live in America, I'm usually working in media and entertainment. And that has been, as I said, for Ted Turner and Jane Fonda, for Warner Brothers, for E! Entertainment Television, Cartoon Network, Sony Pictures, etc. When I'm in Europe, I tend to work in luxury fashion. And I'll just explain. And a lot of people have said to me over the years, you know, how do you do this? I mean, how have you gone, been able to, and I've actually moved back and forth between them, you know, but how have you been able to move between media and entertainment and fashion and luxury? And I think years ago, that would have been a difficult question to answer. But these days, they're almost the same industry. I mean, they, it's almost the same ecosystem because fashion, luxury, as we know, I mean, it's always been celebrity related. But in these times of influencers, you know, where celebrity spokespeople are not necessarily the most persuasive people to be telling your story and presenting your brand, you never know who the next influencer is going to be or where they're going to come from. So studios and the other kinds of companies that used to be the star making machines well, people are, you know, maybe the Kardashians were the first example of this, but people are turning themselves into stars these days. You don't necessarily need to be discovered by a talent agent or blessed by a studio and put in a, a movie or a TV property to become a star. There are different pathways and routes to becoming a major personality out there on the radar who has real impact and credibility. And so I think with, and, and the other thing I will say is it much the, as we were discussing that it used to be, you know, your advertising campaigns and your press releases and your promotions would come down from the mount and the consumer would supposedly be at the bottom of the mount, just waiting to receive them from you and go, Oh, I can't wait to buy it. And now it's a very different era. And so you've got to be part of the cultural conversation. For all of these brands, if you are, and I now consult with different companies in US and Europe, if you are not part of the cultural conversation, you don't exist. And it really doesn't matter how much you're spending on advertising, but people need to be aware of you and talking about you. It's the old chestnut word of buzz, but with social media, how much money you have to spend isn't really going to determine if you are getting noticed and talked about and people are falling in love with you, it really is going to be, you know, are you part of the cultural conversation? So I was back when I was in TV or magazines, because as, as I mentioned, I, I was part of the launch team for Cartoon Network. But then Warner Brothers bought the company from Ted Turner, moved me to the movie studio. I was also at E! and also at Sony Pictures Television. I think when I was first invited to come to Milan to meet specifically, to meet Donatella Versace to talk about the chief marketing officer job, I was in LA. And literally when the headhunter called me, it was a fashion headhunter, called and said, would you be interested in going to Milan to meet Donatella Versace? I said, you know, what number were you dialing? Because I thought, okay, why in the world does me, you know, a TV magazine, et cetera, et cetera, guy, media and entertainment guy, why does Donatella want to meet me? And, and the thing is, every business, no matter what business, you know, in TV and magazines, we used to feel we were in, or movies, we used to feel like we were in the content business. We were in the content industry. Well, I don't care if you sell insurance or if you're in banking or, you know, if you're selling bricks, 
guess what? You are now in the content industry. Everybody has to be creating content. Everybody needs to be telling their story. Everybody needs to be engaging, informing, educating, inspiring their target customer. And again, if you are not, if the line goes dead and you've really got nothing to tell them, well, good luck in this market. So ironically, having come from TV or having come from like the TV promo industry where we had to create content, you know, five second, 10 second, 30 second, 60 second, two minute content daily basis. And then the next morning you get your report card. I mean, TV's great. Obviously digital industry is also great at this. You find out the next morning, did the stimuli we put out there work? You know, you're not waiting months to look at the sales figures on the, on the retail floor. You look at rating numbers and it's like you either got them or you didn't get them. So you're, you're kind of trained, not, we're not all brilliant at this, but when you come from a content creation industry, you learn, is it sticky? Is it juicy? Is it hooky? Or did we get them? Are they paying attention or are they walking away? And you learn how to do it pretty quickly. So now when you move into other industries like fashion, you keep that skill set with you. So to your question, why did I move to Europe? How did I move to Europe? How did I move from, from entertainment into fashion? Donatella Versace. I have in my career, you know, Ted Turner hired me. I told him, I'm like, I, you know, he brought me in as a VP creative director. And I said, I've got to be honest with you. I've never done TV before. Uh, and he's like, that's okay. I'm not hiring you. You know, we can teach you that. I arrived at Donatella's office and I said, I, you know, I literally flew from LA to Milan <laughs> thinking, this will be the world's shortest interview. Uh, and I will get there and she'll be like, who invited you? And I said, you know, I walked in and I'm like, hey, I really, I'm not a, you know, fat luxury fashion guy. She said, that's fine. I know that you've been at, you know, E and Cartoon Network in details and I love them all. And I wanted to meet somebody who'd worked on three brands that I love and that I think are really good. And, and I literally ended up getting the job offer my first trip to Milan. Wow. We clicked. And so I'm telling you, you've got a lot of people you've got. I mean, not everybody is, is a rule breaker and a visionary like Ted Turner, Donatello Versace, some of the other people I've worked for with. But smart people these days are not sitting there looking at a linear CV and saying, okay, well, you did this, you did this, and your whole career has been spent in this category and you've done nothing else. And that looks just wonderful to me. That is the people who've hired me have not said that. I, I mean, have literally said the opposite. They've said, I do not want to meet the usual suspects. I want to meet somebody who's smart and creative, who's, who's done things that I think are relevant for my business and can be bringing some fresh new thinking from outside the category. And so, and that's what I've tried to do. So I've, you know, come over to Europe to work on, and I've worked on some turnarounds, some new brand startups, some revitalizations, even a brand as big as Versace. It's not a cakewalk. You know, it's, there are real challenges. You've got, I mean, in luxury fashion now, it used to be a lot of independent family, the maison, Yves Saint Laurent, Burberry, Christian Dior, et cetera, et cetera, Gucci, Bottega Veneta, they'd be family owned companies, independent. Well, they've all been gobbled up by corporations. And so there are very few independent fashion brands standing there all alone. And those big corporations like LVMH are caring. They've got a lot of money. You know, they've got billion dollar monster brands. They've got a lot of money to throw around in the market. Versace is an independent, really, you know, they were, we were the David and they were the Goliaths. There's a lot of that going on now in a lot of categories. So you're never going to outspend them. Very few, you know, unfortunately, I've never been in a job where I could outspend them. I've always had to outsmart them, outplay them, outwit them. Not I, my teams and I, we've always had to figure out how to do more with less and clutter bust when you don't have the biggest budget. Yeah, well, I, th I think that you said you talked about, you know, your story is so fascinating and encouraging. But I agree with you on this, that you almost have a diversity of 
talent. That is why they wanted you because you're thinking out of the box. You're not just that typical model of what you should be, your diversity of talent. And, you know, I think the good and the bad in general, at least from the studio entertainment side, with technology becoming more advanced, mobile, digital, you have a lot more platforms, a lot more screens you've got to reach. You've got a wider audience now than just coming to a theater or linear approach to stuff. Are you finding that more challenging? Are you going to go back in to tapping into the technology side of content creation? Are you going to stay on the other side? Well, I I will tell you, I've you know, in Milan, I w- was part of a group of the CMOs from all of the big Italian luxury houses. So Prada and Gucci and Zegna and all of them would have meetings and talk. And at some of those conversations, the conversation, it would, it, the topic would go to, okay, well, how much are you going to spend in digital versus traditional media? Traditional media, obviously, being TV, print, outdoor, metro, et cetera. And we all know, you know, fashion, fashion has always been a, been very, very big print customers. That is the way you would, you know, you'd launch your campaign and launch your collection by being in the February book or, or the September book of Vogue and Bazaar and L, et cetera. And, and I've also, every job I've had, I've had a CEO, which sits me down at some point in time and goes, how much should we allocate to digital? And how much should we allocate to traditional? And I will tell you, nobody knows the correct answer to that question. Nobody completely, un- because the to your, your question, Sarah, nobody can really choreograph, completely choreograph modern consumer behavior. And where he or she is picking up various stimuli through their day. It is, it, yes, as you were saying, it used to be much more linear. You know, I go to work and I see these billboards during my commute. And then, I, and I'm reading the newspaper and I see the ads in the newspaper. And then I get home after work and I pour myself a glass of wine and I open my favorite magazine and I turn on TV and I see the commercials on the show. No. No, none of that exists anymore. Nobody's doing any of that. It is, it is in an environment of, of communication and stimulation bombardment. And so to try to say, let's go through the, our customers' lives and try to make sure that we've got a message at all those critical points with an emphasis on decision-making points. It used to be a lot easier than it is now. And so will will we do one or the other? No, you need to do them all. You need to do most of them. And and I also for me I also feel that in a way and I you know I worked in print. I love print. I've always been a magazine holic. Yes, I'm very aware that print is is dying a slow and painful death, but but and having a tough tough time, but I still think print is a beautiful medium. And I also think You know, you do digitally, you can do a lot of with Instagram and Facebook and your website. You can do lots of wonderful little things and to capture their attention and hopefully give them a little spark of electricity as they're scrolling on their phone on the subway platform or whatever. Or maybe they're laying in bed and they pick up their iPad and they're going to do a little do a little browsing. But I think then, so you've got, maybe you've got a wonderful little video or you've got a, you bought a little bit of space in a banner, but I think then the magazine comes out, maybe, maybe I'm speaking a little bit more about fashion and luxury here and your campaign arrives as a spread. And I think one has, has begun to capture their attention or amused and entertained them. And then the latter, when they see it in two dimensional form, then I think it crystallizes and they understand I've gotten lots of stimulation. I've seen lots of little things and and gotten a little bit of buzz or seen a few mentions on social media. But now I see their campaign as they want me to see it and, and in a static form that I can ponder a little bit. So I think there's a a correlation and a codependency. And I think the secret is Use the, your, all your media options are your toolbox. And, and I think it's about picking and choosing 
and prioritizing which ones are best at doing certain things and then creating a mix that that sort of brings the symphony together. Does does that answer what you were asking? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Of course. And I think I think there's so many avenues and we're running out of time here, you know, from it's you know, get your message out at least five times to resonate on the advertising yeah. side. You know, we have virtual now going coming into the mix of how that's affecting right. people. I think the print and Michelle and I interviewed Modern Luxury magazine, one of the group publishers, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. all about the luxury print. And I feel like because I'm a print girl, if I'm on a airport, whatever, I'm on my phone, the computer work so much. I want to break. I want to flip through the glossies. I want to tear stuff yeah. out, but it's easier. But I do think we're now going to bounce back into, we moved away from the print side of digital, but I think we're mm-hmm. almost with COVID moving back to the print. Cause you just want to sit there, take a virtual break from all the zooms and all the back to back being online and flip through a magazine and take a moment to breathe and see everything come to life. So I do think that is coming back. I feel like we got three more major paths we want to go down with you, but we don't have that much time on it. There may need to be a part two. Yeah. (laughs) So I, so I just think, honestly, Stephen, I think we are going to do a part two because I think this is such a. I'll answer more quickly, but also I'm sorry. I've been for. No, 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 no. I just think this is such a good segue into the advertising mode, into the virtual mode, to where we just can't cover this much ground in so much time. So I think we are going to do a from Italy part two, you know, from around (laughs) the world with you in another month or two, because I think Michelle and I probably have so many more questions that we don't have time for. But so I wanted to take a quick minute because we've got Italy part two coming up with you soon. What are you working on right now for everybody? So as many folks may know, Versace was sold a little while ago to Michael Kors, who who actually it's interesting and maybe we'll touch upon it in part two. But Michael Kors, as I was describing those other conglomerates, LVMH and Caring that own, you know, all many, many or most of the big luxury brands, the Americans have been sitting on the sideline and saying, wait, we want to get in on this. So and one of those companies is is Michael Kors. Coach and Coach, which is now renamed Tapestry, is also another company that that wants to ultimately be a portfolio of brands. Michael Kors has bought Jimmy Shoe and now Versace. He he was cash rich and he really, really wanted a legacy European Maison. And he got one. So they paid top dollar. Donatello is doing quite well these days. Thank you very much. So I left. Uh, many of us left at that point with the new American management team and structure. And I was for years, I was in, introduced to, and let me say how I got here, rather than run right back into another European fashion house or go back to work at another studio in America. I was at a point in my career where I didn't necessarily want to be in a big city again. This is pre-COVID because now nobody wants to be in a big city. But but even then, I just thought, well, you know, I'm in Italy. So why am I going to all of a sudden run right back to New York? And I had some very compelling offers back there, but I just thought, Let me see if I can create a different kind of life for myself professionally. Number two, I also thought I spent years and a career selling things to people for big companies. And and I just thought these days when the world feels like it's spinning off its axis, could I possibly do something where I was putting more positive energy into the world? rather than, you know, depleting it. So I looked for something and I, in a way, I think that a lot of us professional people, if we have the means, you know, I don't have three kids I'm trying to set through college. If we have the ability to get into a nonprofit or get into smaller entrepreneurial companies who can use our skills that are maybe doing something more positive in the world, we almost have an obligation to. So David Lynch years ago, the movie director years ago, had introduced me to transcendental meditation, which is, and I won't get into all of what transcendental meditation is, but obviously, but it's, I know people are using lots of meditation apps these days, Headspace, Calm, et cetera. I think I've got five meditation apps on my phone. Transcendental meditation is really the, the original, the earliest, and it was brought to the West from India 
by a guy named Maharishi. He was on the front page of the cover of Time magazine and the New York Times. He was in, he brought the Beatles to India to teach them transcendental meditation. It became a huge thing, specifically transcendental meditation and Maharishi. All the stars were doing it. And so it was the original form of meditation before all these kind of Silicon Valley, Johnny come lightnings. David Lynch is a huge proponent of TM. He feels that it's been As with many people in Hollywood and business, a lot of them attribute a great amount of their success to their practice of transcendental meditation. And I feel it's been very, very beneficial. And I won't turn this into a commercial for TM, but they had years ago, I think when I was at Versace, approached me and said, would you like to come to America and be the CMO for transcendental meditation worldwide? And I said, you know, I'm in Europe. I can't right now, leave everything I've been doing and everything that's going on in my life and just go do TM, but let's stay in touch. And so they recontacted me when I left Versace, when they heard they left, I left Versace and asked, would you come be chief strategic officer for us? And you can do it from Italy. And so until lockdown, I have been the chief strategic officer for Transcendental Meditation, working for them around the world. The challenge for Transcendental Meditation and why I'm on furlough with them at the moment is unlike apps, Transcendental Meditation has always been taught in person. Going thousands of years to India, it was always guru and student. And it was something you'd learn one-to-one over four days, about two hours each day, and something different happening on each day. So obviously with a global pandemic, nobody can learn transcendental meditation if you have to do it in person. And so we push the pause button on things right now. It's obviously brought the business. They are a nonprofit, but it's brought the business to kind of a screeching halt. And whether I will continue with them once things change or not, we, we shall see. But I've loved doing that because I do think that bringing mind, body and spirit for people into a better place and one of those tools, one of those paths is meditation. Meditation that works can only help heal the world right now. So, so I loved feeling that I was doing something more positive, but I also consult private equity companies and venture capitals who are looking to buy luxury brands. Because as I mentioned, everybody saw the $2.2 billion price Versace went for. And they also recognize that there aren't that many companies that are left. And so I sort of on the down low consult with those equity companies looking to buy, to acquire either a European or an American or another luxury company. And that's what I've been up to. And I, and I still live in the mountains of Italy, very happily so. And I'm, I'm in my happily in my little bubble while the world goes crazy around me. So no, I feel very fortunate that I, you know, I, I still, I still love the U.S. and, uh, and and hope brighter days are ahead for America. But also at this moment in time, I'm I'm really enjoying being European. And I think if you have the chance to live in different parts of the world, especially if you're a marketing a creative person, it feeds something in you that just, you know, staying in one place your whole life does not. So sorry for the long answer, but uh, no, no, it makes it's us want job. to move to Europe right now. <laughs> so how you are consulting right now? Uh, I am. Everybody's going to look forward to part two from Italy. How can anybody, because, you know, our demographics are executives around the world. How can anybody reach you if they want to talk to you about anything? Yeah, I'm going to spell my name because I'm on LinkedIn and I'm happy to be connected. You'll, you'll, my most recent post was about my transcendental meditation year that I loved, but I'm going to spell my name for you if you're. If you're listening on audio and you don't see anything, but it's Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. And my last name is Kronkota, C-R-O-N as in Nancy, C-O-T as in Tom A. And you can send me a direct message on LinkedIn, or if you want to connect, if this has been compelling, I'd be happy to connect with you. And then as far as other social media, we can, we can kind of take it from there. I'm deciding these days 
how much more social media I'm going to be able to participate <laughs> in. I'm feeling like right now what I need is fresh air and long walks in nature to smooth out the edges. But but yeah, I'm on LinkedIn regularly. So that's that now everybody knows who I am and where to yeah. find. Well, you're in a great place to get some fresh air and go for long walks. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for taking your Friday evening from Italy to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Michelle, thank you for doing another wonderful podcast with me. This is Sarah Miller with Access Entertainment. And I want to thank everybody for the Meet and Maven podcast today. Stephen, it's been great. And we'll see everybody next week. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks, Michelle. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or you want to find past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>